Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. Okay, let's go over this one more time. There are just 12 notes in the Western musical scale. The way they can be combined to form pleasing sounds are finite in number. It's a big number, but it's still finite. If we look at chords, which are combinations of three or more single notes played simultaneously, the number is smaller still. And there are only so many ways in which chords may be played in a sequence that makes any sense to the ear or the soul. For example, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of songs based on the same four chords at their root. E, B, C-sharp, and A, played in that order. If I haven't lost you to musical theory yet, all these songs are constructed around those chords. With or Without You from U2, Green Days When I Come Around, and Bullet with Butterfly Wings from the Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, and The Offspring's Self-Esteem. And, and then there's Don't Stop Believing by Journey, Barbie Girl by Aqua, and John Denver's Take Me Home Country Roads. In fact, there's a whole Wikipedia page dedicated to what's known as the 1564 progression. It can be played in different keys. For example, Bullet with Butterfly Wings is in B flat, while Self Esteem is in C major. And the chords can be ordered differently, but the common DNA is there. This is just how our scale works and how songs are constructed. Now, listen to me. This is not a sign that any of these artists lack in creativity. No one is breaking any rules. And, listen to me again, no one is ripping off anyone because no one can have exclusive ownership over a chord progression. You cannot do that. However, there is a subset of people, lawyers mostly, who believe that they should be able to sue artists for plagiarism if there's any perceived similarity between two songs. The original composer needs to be compensated for this alleged theft, and even the threat of a lawsuit and jury trial might be enough to scare up some settlement money. This is insane, and the situation has been getting worse and worse and worse. So I think it's time we deconstructed what's happening with these crazy lawsuits that threaten to cripple all of music. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's a band from Latvia called The Gamba, with a 2012 track called You Stole My Song, and that sets things up nicely for this program. We're going to deal with the various music plagiarism lawsuits that have been in the news. My name is Alan Cross. Glad to have you here. First, some deep background. The concept of an artist or songwriter taking another to court for ripping off a song is not new, and there are essentially four sorts of musical plagiarism that can end up before the courts. The first is outright theft. You put your name on a song written by somebody else. An example would be this song from the Beach Boys. We'll all be gone for the summer. We're on safari to stay. Tell the teacher we're serving. Serving 
When that song was released in 1963, the songwriting credit was listed as Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. However, the melody was lifted entirely from a 1958 Chuck Berry song entitled Sweet Little Sixteen. Become so excited. Watch her look at a Brian Wilson, with uncredited help from bandmate Mike Love, just added new lyrics. The record company then slapped Brian's name on the song. When Chuck Berry's music publisher, the company in charge of protecting Chuck's music, found out, they pressured the Beach Boys into adding Chuck's name to the songwriting credits. It's been that way since 1966. Led Zeppelin was caught doing something similar, co-opting old blues songs as their own, especially with their second album. The songs Bring It On Home and The Lemon Song were ruled as highly derivative of earlier songs by Willie Dixon and Howlin' Wolf. And the lyrics to Whole Lot of Love, big song from 1969, were way too close to a 1962 Willie Dixon song entitled You Need Love. It took until 1985 for Dixon to get a co-writing credit. But here's my favorite. Dazed and Confused cost Led Zeppelin money because it was proven to be written by Jake Holmes. He's not a blues singer, but a writer of commercial jingles. Remember the U.S. Army's Be All You Can Be? We do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Hey, First Sergeant. Good morning. You can do it in the Army. Or how about this Dr. Pepper jingle? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper. But before Jake Holmes got into the advertising game and jingles, he was a folk singer and wrote Dazed and Confused in 1967. Jimmy Page heard that version when he was still with the Yardbirds. And when he formed Led Zeppelin, he reworked the song into this. And there were many more accusations of song theft against Led Zeppelin, including a very famous case, but we'll get to that. So there's song theft. That's the first type of plagiarism. The second type is when someone cops bits of an older song for incorporation into a new composition. Back in 1967, George Martin, the famous producer of most of the Beatles' work, got nailed for using elements of Glenn Miller's big band hit In the Mood for the orchestral arrangement of the Beatles' track All You Need Is Love. John Lennon got hit by Chuck Berry over a couple of lines he used in Come Together, which were too close to the lyrics found in a Chuck Berry song called you can't catch me. John was a big Chuck Berry fan and thought he was offering an homage to him, but Chuck didn't see that way. Then, the big one, 1971. George Harrison got caught with this. My sweet Lord. Mm, my Lord. Mm, my Lord. Because it sounded way too much like this Chiffon song from 1963. It took a 
long time to sort that one out, but in the end, the judge ruled in favor of the chiffons, saying that George probably suffered from something called cryptoamnesia. That's a fancy term for a forgotten memory that returns in the form of what the subject believes to be an original thought. So in other words, George didn't realize he was replicating the melody of He's So Fine because he believed it to be an original composition. In other words, he subconsciously plagiarized it. Now, there are differences between the two songs, key, for example, along with arrangement and instrumentation. But the case dragged on and on and on through various iterations before it finally concluded in 1993, 22 years after litigation began. Why did it take so long? Well, there was money involved relating to ownership of the central melody. It took that long to work out who owned what and how much needed to be paid to the people behind the chiffon song, under what circumstances, for how long, and whether or not back royalties were owed. A lot of lawyers made a lot of money from this one case that began in 1971 and, like I said, did not wrap up until 1993. There's a long, long list of cases in which artists were held to account for taking bits of older songs for use as their own. Even Rush had a problem with their epic instrumental La Villa Strangiato from their 1978 album Hemispheres. It's a long, multi-movement instrumental, which contains two sections entitled Monsters. And they go like this. Now, compare that to a 1937 jazz piece by Raymond Scott. In Rush's defense, they thought that old piece of music was in the public domain. It was not, and it cost them some money. The third type of plagiarism involves samples. You cannot use a sample from someone else's song without asking permission. Back in the day, that wasn't a problem. Today, you wouldn't think of sampling somebody without getting permission, without clearing your samples. The Beastie Boys got into trouble with Sure Shot from the Ill Communication album in 1994, and the issue is the flute. That's taken from a 1970 instrumental by Jeremy Stig called Howlin' for Judy. That sample became the basis of Sure Shot, and it ended up causing them some real big legal headaches. Just listen, and, and you'll see why. The case between the Beasties and Jeremy Stig was eventually settled. Stig says it was like he won the lottery. Imagine, you know, multi-platinum album, and all of a sudden, he gets a piece of it. But one of the most famous sampling lawsuits involves the Verve and how they lost control of their song, Bittersweet Symphony, for decades. To explain fully, we have to go back to 1966. Now, back then, it was very common for famous artists to have their songs arranged and recorded for the easy listening crowd. This was seen as a way to bridge the generation gap and to get adults who had money to spend on albums, unlike kids who bought seven-inch singles, to get into this music. For example, 
George Martin did several albums of Beatles music, all arranged as instrumentals for an orchestra. And so did Andrew Lugue Oldham, the manager of the Rolling Stones back in the day. In 1966, he released the Rolling Stones songbook under the name The Andrew Lugue Oldham Orchestra, and it featured this version of the 1965 Stone song, The Last Time. Now, let's be very clear about a few things. That six-second string figure does not appear in the original version of The Last Time by the Rolling Stones. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards did not compose those notes. And Andrew Luke Oldham had nothing to do with those six seconds with those notes either. They were written and arranged by an orchestrator for hire guy named David Whitaker. Okay, remember that, David Whitaker. Fast forward to the late 1990s. Richard Ashcroft, the lead guy for The Verve, came across a copy of the Rolling Stones songbook. He then had his people at the record label negotiate with Decca Records, the holder of the copyright of the Rolling Stones songbook, to use those six seconds as a sample. Decca had no problem. I mean, this was an album that was lying dead for years. A fee was worked out, and The Verve recorded and released the song. One problem, though. Decca didn't hold all the rights to the Rolling Stones catalog. Material released before 1970 was owned by Abco Records, run by Alan Klein, who had succeeded Andrew Lug Oldham as the Stones' manager. I know, this is, this is getting complicated. Klein was annoyed because those six seconds are used to underpin the entire song, Bittersweet Symphony. And it wasn't used just once or twice, but dozens of times. And he wanted money for that. He refused to license that sample, even though the song had already been released and the album was already out, and everything was on its way to becoming The Verve's biggest hit and the album a global, global sensation. Klein filed a lawsuit, giving The Verve two options. The first one was, recall every album and every single from every store and outlet on the planet. Or, number two, relinquishing the rights of the entire song to him. The Verve basically had their backs against the wall. So with no other choice, they signed over all the songwriting credits to Klein, who then slapped the names Jagger Richards on all the copies of the song and the album Urban Hymns. Now, this does not mean that Mick and Keefe got all the money. Remember, Alan Klein owned the rights to Stone songs in their catalog released before 1970. Richard Ashcroft was paid $1,000 for signing over the rights to Bittersweet Symphony. And that was all he or the Verve ever earned from the song between 1997 and May of 2019. So over 20 years. By that time, though, Klein had died. And the Verve's people started negotiating with Klein's son, Jody, as well as Joyce Smith, the manager of the Stones at that time, May 2019. In a surprise move, Ashcroft and the Verve had the rights to Bittersweet Symphony returned to them. And 23 years after the song came out, they finally started earning money with it. But hang on. Remember David Whitaker, the arranger who came up with that six-second figure back in 1966? What did he get out of this? He wrote it. It was the center of the lawsuit. He got exactly nothing. He was paid to do a job back in 66. He did it, and that was it. Wild, huh? No change, Jack, and change, Jack, and change, Jack. 
The long, strange trip of the bittersweet symphony plagiarism case. And here's one more twist. The original version of The Last Time by the Rolling Stones heavily borrowed from a song called This Could Be the Last Time by the Staple Singers. Did they ever face a reckoning for that? Nope. So there were three grounds for filing a lawsuit for copyright infringement. Outright theft, the unauthorized co-opting of musical passages, and unauthorized sampling. But there is a fourth ground. What if a new song just feels like an older one or reminds you of another track? And that's where things have become very, very, very weird. I'd like to talk about that in a sec. This is another program on unfortunate sonic coincidences. Songs that sound a little too much alike and the lawsuits that result. We now have to deal with the subject of songs that happen to feel the same as another older track. They don't necessarily share the same notes, but because the vibe is similar, someone thinks that justice needs to be served. If you ask me, I think this is a serious, serious threat to creativity. Every musician is influenced by all the music they've ever heard. They take elements and techniques and sounds and whatever building blocks of everything they hear and use that to create their own music which may be a bit derivative, but it does advance things down the field. And sometimes their admiration and respect for their forebears is so strong that they want to show homage to them by writing material in the same vein and again advancing the sound by giving it a modern twist. A great example is Oasis. So much of their sound is based on the vibe we get from the Beatles. How many times have you heard an artist described as Bowie-esque because their approach to music conjures images of what David Bowie did? And how many times has Ramon-style punk rock been reinvented? It's called standing on the shoulders of giants, building on the accomplishments of those who came before us. But this apparently can be a crime in some circles of U.S. copyright law. Before we go any further, we have to be very, very clear about this. No one has knowledge of every song ever recorded, even with the internet, even with streaming. Therefore, People will independently discover similar musical ideas, sometimes decades apart. I mean, why would a kid working in her bedroom know that the melody she just came up with had already been recorded by somebody back in 1977? Okay, wait, hold on back up. There are a couple of things that we need to cover before we can go any further. Not everything is subject to copyright protection. First of all, you cannot copyright a song title. If that was the case, all available song titles would have been exhausted long ago. Second, you cannot copyright a guitar riff. Because, as we saw earlier, most riffs are just a series of chords played in a specific order. You cannot copyright a chord progression. We've already made that clear. And third, you cannot copyright a drum beat. Here's an example of that. This is Bo Diddley from 1955. <laughs> And here are the Strange Loves from 1965. And now Iggy Pop from 1977. George Thurgood from 1978. 
And you too from 1988. A bunch of songs from across the decades, all incorporating what has become known as the Bo Diddley beat, all building on tradition and influence and respect. And also because it just feels good. We can go back even further. That rhythm made popular by Bo Diddley in 1955 can be traced all the way back to Yoruba drumming, which originated in West Africa, completely non-copyrightable and fair game for anyone who wants to use that rhythmic pattern. You got that? Right, Jack? So one, two, three, take my hand and come with me because you look so fine that I really want to make you mine. As we've just proven, many songs incorporate similar elements as musicians draw on influences around them. However, there are some lawyers who do not agree with the idea of showing your influences on your sleeve nor do they believe that an artist should show too much respect for someone. In fact, even trying to adopt the same feel appears to be grounds for a lawsuit. This sort of thing happens more often than you know. It's just that settlements were done quietly behind closed doors in the past, without a lot of attention being drawn to the matter. For example, did you know that Radiohead's Creep was judged to have infringed upon a 1972 song called The Air That I Breathe by the Hollies? That's why if you look at the credits for Creep Today, you'll see names like Mike Hazelwood and Albert Hammond. They wrote that song for the Hollies, and after this was brought to Radiohead's attention and there were discussions behind the scenes, their names were added to the songwriting credits. Oh, here's a fun fact. Albert Hammond is the father of Albert Hammond Jr. of the Strokes. Then we have Old Town Road by Lil Nas X. A popular way of writing songs today is to go out and buy some beats from a person who specializes in making beats. They create something, put it online, and then someone buys those beats and turns them into a song. This is exactly what happened with Old Town Road, which, of course, was a massive, massive hit by Little Nas X. Now, let me explain what happened here. Nas was living in Atlanta. He had never heard of Nine Inch Nails. When he was looking for beats online, he found a Dutch kid by the name of Young Kio, who had created a beat based on a track called 34 Ghosts 4. He found that on a Nine Inch Nails record called Ghosts 1 to 4, which is a collection of orphaned instrumentals that Trent Reznor released in 2008. Naz liked these beats from Young Kio, bought it for $30, and then dropped some beats over top of it and released it. Now, Young Keo had no idea who had bought his beats until Old Town Road started showing up on Instagram. And then the song blew up. It stayed at number one on the Billboard singles charts for 19 consecutive weeks, which is an all-time record. Sales were spectacular. Streams were off the hook. It was the biggest smash single in a couple of decades. Meanwhile, Trent Reznor heard the song and went, wait a sec, hang on. But rather than make a big, crazy deal about it, there were behind-the-scenes negotiations. Both Nine Inch Nails and Lil Nas X were signed to the same label. Long story short, Trent and his songwriting partner, Atticus Ross, were given songwriting credits on Old Town Road, and thus a share of the profits. They also got credit 
for having contributed to the longest-running number one single of all time, and they shared in its Grammy wins. Same thing with our guy Young Kyo in the Netherlands. So rather than blow this thing up into a major court case, everything was settled quietly. And it was a big win-win for everybody involved. Now, in case you've never heard the source material for Old Town Road, here it is without Young Kyo's beats. Nine Inch Nails and 34 Ghosts 4. So a happy ending for Lil Nas X and Nine Inch Nails over the appropriation of an old track called 34 Ghosts 4. However, there are other cases where things can turn into a giant farce, and we'll look at those in a moment. There are several music plagiarism cases that have been in the news over the last few years that are very, very concerning, and it all really begins when the estate of Marvin Gaye objected to the sound and feel of Blurred Lines by Robin Thicke, a song co-written by Pharrell Williams, which was released in 2013. Both are deep into old funk and R&B and produced this song as an homage to Marvin Gaye's 1977 song, Got to Give It Up. They completely admit to deliberately trying to copy the song's groove and feel. That turned out to be a big problem. They were sued by the Gaye estate, accusing them of copying the feel and the sound of Got to Give It Up. Okay, here's a bit of Blurred Lines. And here's a sample of Got to Give It Up. Never mind that one is in a major key and the other is in a minor key. And never mind that the chord progressions are completely different. Yeah, okay, there's there's that cowbell. Yes, they use a Fender Rhodes piano. Yes, it was derivative but plagiarized? Gay's people thought so and took it to court for a jury trial. Now, you should know that when such a trial occurs, it's not as simple as playing the two songs for the jury and asking them if they sound too much alike. There are testimonies from people well-versed in composition and musical theory, and it's not so much the recording that's torn apart, but the sheet music of the two songs. It comes down to this. Are the notes the same? And in this case, the answer is, well, no. But somehow, the jury was convinced that plagiarism did happen, and the gay estate was awarded over $8 million. The general reaction amongst the music community was one of outrage. The fear is that ruling sets a precedent that will punish songwriters for making music inspired by older songs and sounds. Taken most broadly, since untold songs are inspired by others, this could bring songwriting down in a giant pile of unending litigation. When the verdict was delivered, I remember thinking, uh-oh, this is going to open the floodgates for a ton of lawsuits by ambulance-chasing lawyers who will search for similarities between big hits of today and lesser-known songs that came before. And that's exactly what's happened. Hey, you know your song from 1972? There's now a big hit on the radio that sounds something like it. Let's threaten to sue for copyright infringement. Maybe they'll settle out of court, 
And if they don't, we'll proceed to a trial using the Blurred Lines case as precedent. Some of the first people to be hit with such a lawsuit were Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson for the song Uptown Funk. They were sued by The Gap Band, a rap group called The Sequence, another called Collage, and another called Zap. They were even accused of plagiarism by a Serbian singer named Victoria. As a result, the songwriting credits and the royalties are being split amongst not just Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars, but 10 others, none of whom had anything to do with this particular specific recording. And the lawsuit just kept on coming. A Christian rapper filed a suit against Katy Perry over her 2012 song called Dark Horse. He claimed that a keyboard figure, and we call keyboard figures ostinatos, which is a repeating phrase in the musical work, he claimed that this figure in Katy's song infringed on the ostinato in his 2008 Grammy-winning track Joyful Noise. And that's not all. He also went on to claim that his song's religious message was, quote, irreparably tarnished by its association with the witchcraft, paganism, black magic, and Illuminati imagery that appears in Dark Horse. No, really, that, that's, that's from the suit. So let's compare. Here's Flame's Joyful Noise. I want you to note the tempo, and I want you to note the pitch of the keyboard figure. You'll hear it. You know what it is. Let's talk about it. Okay, now here's Katy Perry and Dark Horse. Yeah, y'all know what it is. Katy Perry, Juicy J. Uh huh. Let's rage. If you're counting beats, Dark Horse is 10 beats per minute slower, and the keyboard figure is a different pitch. Yet Flame contested that the songs were identical. Katy Perry's people argued that this sort of thing has been used countless times over the centuries, and that Flame was trying to acquire ownership of a basic building block for music, something that would be terribly detrimental and injurious to all songwriters should the court move forward with a ruling in Flame's favor. Flame won the first round. Katy Perry appealed and won. But then, you know, maybe both of them should take a listen to this 1994 recording by The Art of Noise called Moments in Love. The silliest of the post-Blurred Lines lawsuits that I've encountered so far is the accusations made by a songwriter named Steve Ronson. In 2012, he wrote a song called Almost and it features this three-note progression. Can't you see? Okay, let's, let's hear that again. Can't you see? Then along comes Lady Gaga with her Grammy and Academy Award-winning song, Shallow, which features this three-note progression. I'm falling. And again. On the basis of those three notes, played over three seconds, Ronson made noises about suing Lady Gaga for copyright infringement. Now, to my knowledge, he never did. Maybe somebody played him this Kansas song from 1977. I close my eyes. 
Dude, you, you thought you could have ownership of three ascending notes? That was the basis of your complaint? Get out of here. One more weird copyright infringement story, and we have to circle back to Led Zeppelin. In 1968, Led Zeppelin went on tour, opening for an American band called Spirit. During that tour, Spirit often played an instrumental called Taurus, which featured a guitar figure known as an arpeggio, which is when you play a chord by plucking its individual notes. So here it is from Spirit. Three years later, Led Zeppelin releases this. For years, Randy California, the lead guy in Spirits, and then his estate after he died, claimed that Jimmy Page ripped off Taurus for Stairway to Heaven, and therefore... Spirit deserves a piece of the estimated $500 million net worth of Stairway to Heaven. The accusations turned into an extremely contentious court case that went on for years. And to deconstruct everything would require a book on the subject, because this leads into a discussion of a 1909 American copyright law, something known as best available copy deposits with the Copyright Board, an examination of something called the inverse ratio rule, and some deep discussions of musical theory, especially when it comes to the characteristics of the chromatic scale. Suffice it to say that after trial after trial, the case reached on appeal all the way to the Supreme Court in 2020. But after looking at all the details, the court said, get out of here. There should be no more talk of Stairway to Heaven being a ripoff of Taurus. Oh, and before we leave this, I should probably point out the contributions of Giovanni Battista Granada. He wrote a piece entitled Sonata di Chitarra e Violino con il Sui Basso Continuo. He did that more than 400 years ago. Listen, you want to make something out of the fact that at least part of Stairway to Heaven is in the public domain? Yeah? Like I've said many times, people are always emailing me to point out similarities between two songs, inevitably ending with, don't you think this is a ripoff? The inference is that the alleged infringing artist has zero creativity and thus has resorted to stealing someone else's music. But are the similarities real? Are they actionable? Has a theft actually occurred? And 999 times out of 1,000, the answer is no. As we've seen, there are basic building blocks of music that are free for anybody to use. No one can own any of them for their exclusive perpetual use. Otherwise, we've come to the end of songwriting. Now, there is hope for ending these lawsuits. In October 2020, there was a ruling by an American court that set a statute of limitations on copyright infringement. It had to do with a lawsuit between two guitar makers, with one accusing the other of ripping off one of its designs. The ruling said that if you are accused of infringing on a copyright by someone who says they own it, you must speak up and say, no way. Once you do that, the accuser has three years to bring forth a case. 
If the accuser does not, then the claim is barred forevermore. This could have an effect on people coming out of the woodwork to declare that you stole some of their music. We'll see. This program is available as a podcast through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the other platforms. Just download and go. Everything is free. And you're invited to check out my website, which is at journalofmusicalthings.com. I update it every day, and it comes with a free newsletter so you don't miss anything. We can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and all emails should go to alan at alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Catex. And I have two of the hosts of Art Catex with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now. It's still relevant, you know. Like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, and we're two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creator, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our 
of the show was with Dave Myers, um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time, and just talking about that the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done, and you know, as well digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast, and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they what gravity what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moments. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art. As far as the storyboards and the the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration, so it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how. Uh, we get to the finish line, right? I've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind <laughs> of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these you know things? Uh, and and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era, watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh uh and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry like a wolf video. Like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and 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 just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the Stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And and before we jump, I just want to say please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Taj Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.